everyone has a story. And if there's one thing we humans are good at, it's inventing stories when we don't know the facts. We love a good mystery. We love inventing outlandish, titillating, and sometimes sinister narratives to fill the gaps left by history. We love assuming the worst or most dramatic about peculiar or baffling circumstances. Is it that we lack excitement in our own lives? Is it that we wish for a more storied existence for ourselves? Or is it, as so often is the case, just fear filling our heads with dark and troubling versions of the past? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and a podcaster who will never understand how someone can simply walk by another human being seemingly in distress and do nothing about it. God forbid something awful were to happen to that person, and you could have prevented it just by seeing if they needed some help. Did Groundhog Day teach us nothing? Today's story is an oldie, but a goodie with a very recent update to boot. So make sure your passport is current and get ready to travel to Australia as we dive in to the mystery that was the Somerton Man. And just a note before we begin, I have summarily decided to refrain from having my actors or me attempt Australian accents because I don't want you Aussies making fun of me. So, on the evening of November 30th, 1948, a couple described by Smithsonian Magazine as, quote, jeweler John Bain Lyons and his wife, end quote, it's always wild to me that we identify people by their jobs, even when it has nothing to do with anything. Like, that's his whole identity. Was walking along on Somerton Beach, a seaside resort town south of Adelaide, Australia, when they spotted, about 20 yards away, an extremely well-dressed man lying on the sand, his head propped up on a rock. His legs were crossed at the ankle, extended out in front of him, and while they watched, he lifted his right arm and then let it fall back down onto the sand. Apparently, they thought he might have been trying to smoke a cigarette, and then they just walked away. About a half hour later, another couple saw the man and described him as immaculately dressed with shoes polished to a mirror shine, lying in the same position the other couple reported seeing him in. According to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, he was motionless, his left arm splayed out in the sand. The couple decided that he was simply asleep, his face surrounded by mosquitoes. He must be dead to the world not to notice them, the boyfriend joked, end quote. Sigh. Come on, people. Why would a man in a suit and dress shoes be dead drunk on a beach? And even if he were, don't you think you might just want to, I don't know, check on him? The next morning, two teenagers riding their horses down the beach noticed him on their way south. When they rode back by sometime later and saw the man was still lying in the same position, they decided to check on him. Because, duh. They thought they noticed that he wasn't breathing, so one of the kids got off their horse, lifted one of the man's legs, which dropped back down, and that's when they realized he was dead. As a small crowd gathered, jeweler John Lyons, who had passed the man the night before with his wife on their stroll, was just coming in from his morning swim. According to the Smithsonian, 
quote, walking over, he saw a figure slumped in much the same position, head resting on the seawall, feet crossed. Now, though, the body was cold. There were no marks of any sort of violence. A half-smoked cigarette was lying on the man's collar as though it had fallen from his mouth, end quote. That's when he notified police. By 9.40 a.m. December 1st, the man was lying on the medical examiner's table who guessed the man had died sometime around 2 a.m. and that the likely cause was heart failure, but he also suspected poisoning. In the man's pockets, investigators found tickets to Somerton from Adelaide, presumably bus tickets, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, two combs, and seven Concedus brand cigarettes in a pack of Army Club brand cigarettes. There were, unfortunately, no identifying papers or cards among the man's belongings. For some reason, all but one of the tags in his clothes had been carefully removed, and a pocket in his trousers had been repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. The man was in good physical condition and had clean, well-manicured fingernails and toenails. According to the official inquest dated June 17, 1949, coroner John Michael Dwyer noted, The general impression I gained was that he was a man whose bearing you would take notice of by reason of his general appearance. The autopsy findings are gross, but, like, I have to go over them. His pupils were smaller than normal, and there was dried spit on his chin, suggesting that he'd been unable to swallow as he lay there dying. His spleen was three times bigger than a spleen should be, and apparently firm, which spleens, I guess, are usually squishy. His liver was also swollen and congested with blood, and his stomach contained remnants of a final meal, and apparently, more blood. The blood further suggested poisoning, but no evidence of poison was found in the undigested food in his stomach. With no identifying papers, police had little to go on. They took a full set of the man's fingerprints and circulated them internationally. Once the man's picture was published in papers, some people began to come forward to say they thought he might be a friend of theirs, while others thought he might be a missing relative. Two people thought he might be a missing man named Robert Walsh, but Walsh was a good 20 years older than the Somerton man appeared to be. Each of these potential connections were brought in to view the man in person, but no one was able to identify him. Some of those people were just desperate to have some information about their own lost loved one, and, of course, some of those people were just satisfying a morbid curiosity by going to see a dead body up close. Nonetheless, each lead was investigated and seemingly led nowhere. So now the focus turned to trying to find any abandoned possessions this man might have left behind before mysteriously dying on the beach at Somerton. This was a massive undertaking, as it meant searching every hotel, train station, dry cleaners, and lost property office in a pretty large radius. Luckily, the authorities did have the ticket from Adelaide, which at least gave them a vague starting point. And indeed, when they searched the Adelaide train station, investigators found a suitcase that had been checked in at the cloakroom just two days before the man was found on the beach. And while the staff at the train station couldn't recall who had left the suitcase, the contents left police, quote, satisfied beyond doubt that the clothing in the suitcase belonged to the man found dead at Somerton, end quote, according to a piece in the Advertiser from January 18, 1949. 
One particularly interesting item in the suitcase was a spool of orange thread identical to the thread that had been used to mend the man's trousers. Once again, the tags in the clothes had been removed except for three items which bore the names Keen or T. Keen. But police were unable to trace that name to anyone and suspected that someone may have left them there to throw off the investigation. In addition to the clothes and thread, the suitcase held a stencil kit commonly used by officers on merchant ships to label cargo, a table knife with its handle cut down, and a coat with a kind of stitch not regularly used in Australia. A tailor identified the stitching as American, but searches of shipping and immigration records yielded nothing. It wasn't a lot to go on. All they could really surmise from what they had was that the man, whoever he was, likely arrived in Adelaide on the morning of November 30th, shaved at the railway station because he was found on the beach clean-shaven, checked his suitcase in at the cloakroom, at which point he possibly bought a train ticket to Henley, though where they got that piece of information I don't know, missed his train, and took the bus to Somerton instead. However, according to the Smithsonian, no one at the station recognized the man from the pictures police showed them. And this is particularly interesting when you remember that the coroner was like, this is not a dude you're likely to miss. So WTF, who was this unmissable guy who everyone seemed to miss? In April of 1949, four months after the Somerton man's body was found on the beach, police asked John Cleland, emeritus professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to take another look at the body and belongings, just in case there was something they might have missed in the first couple of go-arounds. In his search of Somerton man's pants, Professor Cleland found a tiny hidden pocket in the waistband of his trousers. People sometimes hear this fact and believe it means the guy was a spy or something, when in reality it was most likely just a pocket for a pocket watch. Not super uncommon and not actually that exciting at all, except that I do think we should bring back pocket watches because they're cool. Anyway, in this super cool but not really at all cool pocket was a tiny piece of paper rolled up tight. When investigators unfurled the paper, they found two words printed in typeset elaborate script that read, Tamam Should, which roughly translated means the end or finished in Persian. To some, this cryptic message meant that the Somerton man had died by suicide. And indeed, at this point, police had not yet decided if the case was a homicide or suicide or, I suppose, some kind of tragic accident. Frank Kennedy, a police reporter for The Advertiser, recognized the phrase Tamum Shud and suggested the page came from the end of a book of poetry from the Middle Ages called The Rubaiyat by Omar Khayyam. And while it may seem random that someone might be carrying a page from a book of 11th or 12th century Persian poetry, the Rubaiyat had actually become pretty popular in Australia during World War II thanks to a translation by Edward Fitzgerald. It being a popular book served as a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the reporter was able to identify the text right away. On the other, police now had the daunting task of finding a copy of the book with the last page torn out. Meanwhile, the official inquest into the man's death and identity had come out. Three medical experts agreed that while they couldn't determine the cause of death, they were pretty sure it was heart failure, most likely due to poisoning. 
Professor Cleland wrote, quote, Three medical witnesses are of opinion on the postmortem findings that death was not natural. The words Tamum should support this conclusion and indeed put its accuracy beyond reasonable doubt. There was no indication of violence, and I am compelled to the finding that death resulted from poisoning. But what poison? End quote. The thing is, they still couldn't find any evidence of any actual poison. Poisoning seemed like the logical conclusion given the man's good physical health, no sign of prior medical issues, the conditions of his organs, and the amount of blood found in his stomach during the autopsy, but there wasn't a trace of actual poison anywhere to be found. A dose large enough to be lethal but small enough to leave the body quickly wouldn't have killed him as quickly as it seems he died, and a larger dose would surely be found somewhere in his body. Given this, Professor Cleland was advised by an eminent professor, and no, I don't know what that means, named Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, that it had to have been a rare kind of poison that decomposes very quickly after death. Hicks suspected there were just two possible poisons that could have been used, digitalis or strophanthin. The general assumption up till this point was that the Somerton man died on the beach, but Professor Cleland suggested it was possible he died somewhere else and then was dumped at the beach. After all, he argued, the four witnesses who said they saw the man on the beach the night before never saw his face. Wasn't it possible, he wondered, that they were indeed two different men? Okay, so what? Someone killed Somerton man and brought him to the beach to dump the body where a look-alike decoy had just been chilling, hiding his face, waiting for the dead body to arrive? I'm not sure I follow. I mean, sure, anything is possible. If you want to believe that two extremely well-dressed men just happened to be lying in the same spot in the same position on the beach 12 hours apart. The official inquest addressed this possibility this way, quote, If this speculation, for it is nothing more, should prove to be correct, the original assumption that it was the deceased who left the suitcase at the luggage room, bought the rail ticket and bus tickets, removed the clothing tags, and put the printed words, Tarnam Shudu, in a pocket, would require revision. End quote. And yes, they misspelled the quote in the official inquest. But I don't know why that would have to be the case. Couldn't it be that for some reason he had already had the labels of his clothing removed? Maybe labels made him itch. Could it be that he checked his luggage, bought the tickets, and then someone poisoned him and then left him on the beach? I mean, why he would have that tiny scroll in his pocket, who knows? But who knows why any of this happened? No one, which I guess is the point. That's why I do this podcast. And besides, I still think it's highly unlikely that the man from the night before and the dead man in the morning were two different people. But beyond that, or perhaps in part because of it, Cleland couldn't definitively say anything, really, about how or why the man was found lying dead on the beach. He was fairly certain he'd been poisoned, but whether he'd poisoned himself or was poisoned by someone else, he couldn't say. However, the Somerton man wasn't done offering up clues. For example, Paul Lawson, a taxidermist who'd been tasked with embalming the body, pointed out that the man's feet and calves were unusual. For the inquest, Lawson reported this, quote, His feet were rather striking features, suggesting, this is my own assumption, he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. I base that on the fact that the calf muscle was high and well-developed, such as found in women. 
The feet were comparatively broad at the joints of the toe and the foot, but the big toe and the little toe were joined together toward a common apex. In other words, wedge-shaped, end quote. Some believed this disfigurement meant he had been a ballet dancer. I love that they were like, well, obviously a man wouldn't wear high heels, so he must have been a ballet dancer. But also, like, I don't think male ballet dancers dance on point, do they? Don't they just wear ballet flats and tights parading around their enormous packages? Anyway, with nary a usable lead or clue, police were forced to bury the man in June of 1949, but not before smartly making a plaster cast of his face. The Somerton man was buried in a cemetery in Adelaide with a grave marker that read, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, 1st December, 1948. The plot was covered in cement, and the ground was chosen specifically because it was dry, so that if they ever had to exhume the body, it wouldn't be too badly decomposed. Apparently, flowers could be found at the gravesite all the way up until 1978, 30 years after the man died. No one knew who left them or why. That said, I've met people who visit graves of unknown people every year, just so someone does. So that might not have any significance at all, except that sometimes people can be kind. About five weeks after the Somerton man was buried in Adelaide, on July 23, 1949, a local businessman named John Freeman walked into the Adelaide detective office with a copy of the Rubaiyat with the last page missing. Freeman claimed that early in December of the previous year, shortly after the Somerton man's body was found, his brother-in-law had been reading the book in Freeman's car and left it in the glove box. Freeman was a chemist who lived near the beach and whose car had been parked a few hundred yards from where Somerton man was found. At some point, he said, he saw a story in the paper about the man and the missing book and remembered seeing his brother-in-law with it, so he checked his glove box and wouldn't you know, there was a copy of the Rubaiyat with the last page missing. Freeman called his brother-in-law and was like, dude, I think you have that dead guy's book. And his brother-in-law was like, that was your book. I found it on the floor of your back seat. So the book apparently belonged to neither man and they don't know how it got there. As soon as he had his hands on it, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean examined it closely and found two potentially important clues. There was a phone number penciled in on the back cover and the faint impression of letters underneath the number. Under ultraviolet lights, the letters became clearer. There were five lines of seemingly random capitalized letters with the second row seemingly crossed out. Or if you're a fan of succession, you might say it wasn't crossed out, it was underlined. Investigators sent the sequence of letters to codebreakers in the Australian Naval Intelligence Service as well as printing it in newspapers for anyone to take a crack at it. But no one had any luck. And after the Navy had some time with it, they issued this statement. Quote, from the manner in which the lines have been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis but the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate, insofar as can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with the table of frequencies of initial letters of words in English than with any other table. 
Accordingly, a reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words or a verse of poetry or such like, end quote. So the letters, it seemed, led nowhere, at least for the time being. But what about that phone number? The phone number belonged to a nurse who didn't want to be identified in the papers and so was at first known only as Justin. She lived just a few hundred meters from where the Somerton man was found. Police asked her if the copy of the Rubaiyat with the page missing and her phone number written on it meant anything to her. It did. She told police the book had indeed belonged to her, but that about three and a half years earlier, she gave the book to an Australian army lieutenant named Alfred Boxall. So just in case you're keeping notes, the tiny rolled up torn page of a book of 11th century poetry found in a dead man's pocket came from a book that once belonged to a woman who just happened to live a few hundred feet from where his body was found. Okay? Okay. Justin explained to police that Boxall had written letters to her sometime after she'd given him the book, but she'd gotten married and apparently replied telling him that. After moving back to Somerton, however, at some point in the previous year, she said she couldn't remember what month, she was told a man had come around looking for her. She didn't know who the man was, if it had been Boxall or not. And it was after that incident that the Somerton man was found dead on the beach near her home. At last, police were like, huzzah, we found our man, mystery solved. But just to cross their I's and dot their T's, they did a quick search and found that Alfred Boxall was alive and well in New South Wales. Not only that, but he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat that Justin had given him. Boxall's copy featured an inscription from Justin that read, Indeed, indeed repentance oft before I swore. But was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. Which is a poem in the book. Also, Boxel's copy of the book still had the last page securely intact. So at this point in the story, there are, presumably, two copies of this book that were both likely from the same printing, as evidenced by the typeset, both of which were somehow connected to this nurse who lived within walking distance of where the Somerton man was found. Police took Justin to the station to look at the plaster cast of the corpse. She said she didn't recognize the man's face. There seems to have been some account of Justin acting strangely and or nearly fainting when she saw the bust, but the three places I found that info all differed slightly and didn't cite their sources, and I don't know, something feels a little sensational about that. As we've learned, stories have a way of getting embellished once they enter the feedback loop of the internet. At any rate, if she did act strangely, I don't know if I'd read too much into it. It's not every day you're hauled down to the police station and shown a plaster cast of a dead person. You know? It's pretty macabre. Anyway. Almost a decade after the Somerton man was found, the South Australian coroner published his findings in which he concluded... I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. So, right back where they started. Taken at face value, all the pieces of the puzzle, the lack of ID, the secret pocket, the code, and the mysterious manner and cause of his death, it's not hard for people to assume he must have been 
a spy. The world was in the early stages of the Cold War, and there seemed to be a number of connections, however tenuous they may have been. For example, Alfred Boxall had worked in intelligence during the war, and Somerton was a few hundred miles away from one of the most secret military bases in the world. There had also been a number of Russian spies at the time whose murders were found to be the result of digitalis poisoning. How were these spies identified? It just so happened that Australia and the U.S. were in the middle of some major breakthroughs in code breaking in the late 40s, during which a number of names of Russian spies were decoded and revealed. That dead end is where the case sat for decades. And then, in the late 80s, while cleaning out the investigation's evidence room, someone apparently Marie Kondoed all of the Somerton man's belongings. Listen, it just didn't bring them joy. They had to let it go. Oh, except for the copy of the Rubaiyat with the page missing. They still had that. <laughs> just kidding. Police had lost that sometime in the 50s. Oops. Am I right? Fast forward another couple decades to 2009 when Derek Abbott, a professor at the University of Adelaide, decided it was time to apply new forensic technology to the old case, partly out of a sense of curiosity, but partly, he said, Governments today sponsor DNA identification of World War I and World War II unmarked graves in order to bring closure to families. Our individual identities are fundamental to being human, and this is why we are all given names at birth. Civilized societies always strive to preserve the identities of the dead, whether it be the result of accident, crime, war, or natural disaster. Thus, there is the social imperative to improve our forensic methods and apply modern science to mitigate the ultimate dehumanization, identity loss. The first thing Abbott and his team of students did was try to decipher the so-called code found written on the back of the Rubaiyat. After a lot of work, the team concluded the letters were either a one-time pad code, which as far as I can understand is basically a code that can only be used once by the recipient who is presumably the only one with the key. Listen, when I do escape rooms and it comes to breaking codes, I am out. You need me to get us out by doing the equivalent of the Sunday paper jumble? I got you. You need me to crawl into the freezer with a fake dead body? I'm your guy. But once you put a code in my face, I effectively go into a fugue state. It's like a form of dissociative narcolepsy, and it serves me well. Anyway. If it wasn't a one-time pad code, the team said, it was probably just the first letters in some kind of list. Places he'd visited, horses he wanted to bet on. Professor Abbott ended up concluding what a lot of people had. The Somerton man was a spy. For one thing, no one had come forward to claim him, though Lord knows there are plenty of stories of people dying and no one even knowing they're gone. And two, and this gets super weedy, so I'm going to sum it up as best I can. According to author Jerry Feltis in his book The Unknown Man, A Suspicious Death at Somerton Beach, Basically, Professor Abbott had discovered at least one other man by the name of Marshall who died in Australia after the war with a copy of the Rubaiyat close to him. That alone is a weird coincidence, but both copies found on the dead man, it seemed, should not have existed as far as any printing house was concerned. For one thing, Marshall's copy was a seventh edition, but there had only ever been five editions up to that point. And the Somerton Man's edition, given where it was said to have been printed, should have been in a different format. Was it possible, Feltus wondered, that these weren't actual copies of the Rubaiyat at all, but were instead one-time code pads? 
like James Bond's pen that's actually a bomb, only less flashy and more poetic. According to Feltus, there was also one major overlooked piece of evidence in the file. Eleven years after the Somerton man was discovered, a witness came forward to say they'd seen, quote, a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, end quote, the night before the Somerton man was found. Personally, I don't put much weight behind this one. First of all, anyone can remember anything they want more than a decade after the fact. And secondly, again, that would mean the four witnesses who saw the man the night before saw a different man. And I just can't buy that. Not today, Bob. But if Somerton Man was indeed a spy, some wonder if Justin, the nurse who gifted a man a copy of the Rubaiyat and lived awfully close to the terminus of this crime, as it were, may have also been a spy. But Justin, whose name was later revealed to be Jessica Thompson, would never tell. She died in 2007. Her daughter Kate, on the other hand, had plenty to say. She told 60 Minutes Australia that her mother had once admitted to knowing the identity of the Somerton man and that she had once mentioned she could speak Russian. When her daughter asked her where she'd learned Russian, Jessica allegedly said, that's for me to know. Whether Kate ever heard her mother speak Russian though, I don't know. Kate, it seems, has quite the imagination and told 60 Minutes she believed that her older brother Robin may have been the Somerton man's son. Professor Abbott, armed with this potential information, tried to track down Robin, but alas, he too had died in 2007. He did, however, find Robin's daughter, Rachel Egan, no relation, who told Abbott that Robin had been, dun dun dun, a ballet dancer. Professor Abbott and Egan met for dinner to discuss the case and apparently decided by the end of that dinner to get married. I mean, live your life. Apparently, as of 2021, they're still married and have three kids together. Professor Abbott teamed up with Colleen Fitzgerald, a forensic scientist, not the singer, also known as Vitamin C, to finally put a name to the mysterious man who died 73 years before. Their first bit of luck was finding enough of the Somerton man's hair embedded in the plaster cast of his bust. Using the DNA pulled from his hair, they built a family tree of over 4,000 people. I can only imagine how painstaking this work was, but one by one, they eliminated people from the tree until they were left with a man named Carl Webb, who appeared to have no death record anywhere. Using what historical records they could find, however, they determined that Carl, or Charles, was born in 1905 in Victoria, which was, incidentally, where police thought the Somerton man may have been from. He'd been an electrical engineer and an instrument maker, so not a ballerina, or Robin Thompson's father, or, it would seem, a spy? Webb's sister had lived in Melbourne and was married to a man named Thomas Keene. And that explained the name tags in the man's clothing. At some point in 1947 or 48, Webb quit his job as an electrician in a factory and apparently left his wife, Dorothy Robertson, who filed for divorce on the grounds of desertion around that time as well. Webb's family of origin was also very fractured at the time. According to an article on IEEE.org, quote, his parents were dead, a brother and a nephew had died in the war, and his eldest brother was ill. 
One of his sisters died in 1955 and left him money in her will, mistakenly thinking he was still alive and living in another state. The lawyers administering the will were unable to locate Charles, end quote. As it stands, investigators still haven't officially ID'd the Somerton man as Charles Webb, but it seems pretty likely that's who he was. And unless his name turns up on some declassified military documents to show he was indeed a spy, it seems like he was just an ordinary guy with an ordinary life who died a mysterious death. Clearly, something drove him to quit his job and walk away from his wife, but we'll probably never know what that might have been. Whether it was espionage or depression or just plain wanderlust, it will remain a mystery. That and how he ended up dead on that beach. And you know what? With forensic technology and technological advancements in general, there really are so few real mysteries left in this world. So maybe it's okay to not know. Maybe we need enigmatic problems to apply our imaginations to. Maybe that is one of the ways we keep life interesting for ourselves. Maybe being normal and stable in this crazy world is an act of fortitude. Maybe Somerton Man was just an ordinary person trying to get through life, buoyed by his own stories of mystery about the world around him. And maybe giving him a romantic and tragic story is the best legacy we can leave him with. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll meet a man who decided the best way to save his whole family was to murder them and then disappear. The story of John, this fucking guy, List. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineered and mixed by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Andrea Jones-Sojola, and Ryan Garcia. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head over to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please do help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a glowing review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't like the show, feel free to give it a one-star and terrible review. The name is The Laura Ingram Show. 